When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you want to get your MBA and you've got a few questions. Well, we've got answers. Welcome to the MBA podcast, the spot for honest and actionable advice about business school. For more information, check out our site at thembapodcast.com. Now, here's your host, David O'Brien. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, listeners, Zach is a boothy. Um, he is a, a first year right now, correct? Or a second year? Yeah, for sure. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Why don't you give us basically a, a quick intro of who you are? Yeah, so I am Zach Farkas, uh, Chicago Booth, class of 2025. Um, I am pursuing entrepreneurship. And do you want me to go like more into like full background or... We'll probably get to full background as we go through, because I definitely want to ask about your experience getting to Booth. But yeah, okay. just a, a quick, you know, you're pursuing entrepreneurship. Um, yeah, and a one why. That's perfect. Yeah. Okay, cool. Easy, easy. Um, so going into your background, uh, I know mm-hmm. you are a veteran. So let's mm-hmm. let's start there. Yeah, so for me, um, sort of all rewind all the way back to high school. Um, my parents like got me involved with Boy Scouts. That's kind of where I got like into sort of like the service mindset. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I really kind of needed a scholarship to go to like an out of state school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also always like had um, sort of an attraction to, to military service. So um, I did ROTC and I, I went to Wake Forest and then, you know, for any like international people listening, um, you know, in the U.S., if you do ROTC, then owe the army four years uh, after, but they pay for school. So that was great for me. And then, yeah, went into the army after that. I was an infantry officer and um, I absolutely loved it. Like it was probably the best six years I've had, you know, professionally ever as far as like fun and like being a part of a team. And it, it was just a great experience. Well, that's awesome. Did you ever get stationed in uh, Fort Carson in Colorado? No, I, I was in Fort Benning to do sort of my like initial training. Um, and then I was stationed in Hawaii the, the five and a half years after that. So okay. not terrible. <clears throat> yeah, it was amazing. So, so, so where, where did you say you did ROTC again? What college? Uh, Wake, Wake Forest University. Wake Forest. And what'd you major in? I was a comm major. So okay. I was just kind of, I knew I, you know, at the time, uh, Looking back, I don't, I don't, wouldn't say I regret it, but looking back, I just thought I was going to do sort of a 20 year military career and my major didn't matter that much. Um, not, not that there's anything wrong with being a comm major, but I, I do think that there's probably more practical things for like what I ended up doing and what I, you know, where I am now, but yeah, it was, it was good. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get to that. Cause, um, you know, we talk a lot about not only are you a non-traditional applicant because you're military, but also you have a non-business or finance or econ undergrad, which is right. always interesting. Um, obviously, yeah. you're proof in the pudding, very, very able to still get into top tier schools. But um, so you were in, in the army six years, mm-hmm. got out as a 03, I assume. Yeah, I got out as a yeah, 03. Okay. Um, 
if, if there's more stuff I'm skipping over, please feel free to reference it. But, um, you know, moving forward a little bit, what, when did the MBA come into your mind? Yeah. So when I was, um, when I was actually like transitioning out of the army, um, the two, my two fellow like peers and platoon leaders and my, my direct line supervisor, my company commander, they were all getting out and all like looking to pursue an MBA. Um, I did like, I lightly prepared for the GMAT and I was like in, I was in like, you know, high 500s, you know, whereas like we, we all took the same course and like the, my two peers, like they were in like the low 700s. So I was just, I just kind of was like, oh, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go to a top tier school. And I don't think I really was like well equipped to like, know how to study for the GMAT. It just like, wasn't like my style of course. Um, the one that we all did. Um, so then I, you know, just kind of like stumbled into residential mortgage lending. Um, which I think we can get to that in a different kind of different segment, but sure. you know, kind of fast forward three and a half years from trying to get in, like exiting the, the military. Um, I did like really well mortgage lending. And then, um, I just knew that, you know, I, I really like, I, I kind of like got reignited to go back to business school because I was able to do some really awesome things while being a mortgage lender. And I just, it kind of gave me the confidence to like, Hey, I can, I can do entrepreneurship. Um, but I really want that like educational foundation prior to like founding my company. So yeah, um, makes sense. So kind of to a failed attempt and then a successful attempt, you know, I guess actually five years later. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, I am so glad we're, we're interviewing you. Uh, listeners, just so you know, I know my previous two interviewees I've known beforehand. Zach and I do not know each other, um, so I'm getting to know him right now as well. Um, Zach, just to make sure, so um, commissioned as an 01 when you were 22-ish, six years mm-hmm. in, you're 28, five some mm-hmm. odd years after that, you're applying to business school. So you're older than the average candidate as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm 33. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. My wife was in her thirties when she applied as well. So we'll, uh, we'll want to touch a little bit on why you didn't do the executive pro actually, let's just do that. Um, most people have a misnomer of basically X amount of years of experience makes me an executive candidate. Um, mm. as I've explained on the podcast, that's not always the case. And you have six, 11, you have, you know, 10 to 11 years of experience why did you choose the full time instead of the executive? I just, you know, I just, my whole professional career, I just really like, I was, you know, a hundred miles an hour the whole time. Um, and I think for like an executive MBA, um, that was something like my, my girlfriend sort of has like more of a like traditional background in education. Like I wouldn't say like, I'm probably one of like three or four people that like went to college out of like my grade school and stuff like that. Um, so I just like, she was always like, yeah, like you're, you should do an exec ed. But for me, I just like, I really wanted to like take the time to focus on sort of like me. And I don't know, I know like people, and I, I didn't even really research exec eds that much, but in my head, there was sort of like a stigma that it was more part-time and like you had a job. And I don't need to have a job. The, you know, obviously the, the military is like paying for me to go to school, which is a great benefit. Like I got undergrad and this. Um, 
so yeah, I just was like, if I have the time, like I want to do the full-time program, delve in, and I really want to like make the most out of an MBA experience and do it full-time. So that was why for me. That's perfect. And and Zach, I'm not trying to be asinine to you, but for our listeners mm-hmm. out there who maybe haven't decided yet, uh, if you're listening to this and anything about what Zach said resonates, please understand, do full-time. If there's doubt in your mind, I would recommend the full-time program. The executive program, we won't go into this in too much detail for you listeners out there, but um, unless you 100% know for sure you must do the executive program, you probably don't need to do it. We'll go into that in more detail later, but exactly what Zach said, he's super experienced. We'll get more into his real estate business, very successful, um, but still is doing the full-time program. And I, I want to echo that sentiment if you're applying. Um, okay. So when you first separate it as an O3, you, and this is common. Um, a lot of times I've interviewed and talked to a lot of people like my wife, who's, um, mentors at work had MBAs and suggested it. It sounds like that's what kind of put the initial bug in your head about it. Um, low GMAT score happens to everybody. Well, sometimes happens to my wife, happened to me. Um, but what, where do you want to start? Do you want to tell me after the GMAT, you kind of, you bombed it and then you decided, okay, I'm going to start doing some real estate stuff. Yeah. Um, and I'll be like pretty candid, um, and open. I know like, like I'm pretty open about like talking about money, um, which <clears throat> I think for some people is like a no, no, but it just doesn't bother me. So um, helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I kind of bombed the GMAT. One of my really good, like surfing buddies was a mortgage lender and he's like, Hey, you know, I make 1% of the transaction like that I do. He's like, I do like three, four loans a month. I surf every morning. I make 20 grand a month. He's like, it's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, like I definitely want to stay in Hawaii. That sounds awesome. Um, so that's kind of what did I, what I ended up doing. Um, so, you know, he's like, I'll show you the ropes, you know, it'll be great. And like, it was exactly what he said it was, you know, the first three or four months. Um, I mean, it could have been exactly what he said it was. So I think, um, and it, it, I could have made it that, um, I, I think I had like sort of a chip on my shoulder. I'd gotten like med dropped from ranger school, um, as a Florida recycle, which means like I had like five days left to graduate with a go. Um, and I feel like in the army, I kind of was always like, you know, not, I mean, people knew my story, but I still didn't have that tab. Um, so I definitely had like a chip on my shoulder. And once I got into like this environment where you like eat what you hunt, like I just like completely took off. Like within the first three months I was like leading my entire like branch in sales. And then I just kind of, yeah, I, I just like went full, full speed into mortgage lending. Um, and it definitely wasn't like a money thing for me. Um, the, the money attracted me to it, but we'll kind of rewind. I hope I'm not jumping around too much, but I started investing in real estate with a VA loan when I was like 23. I bought my first house in Hawaii, bought my second house in Hawaii, still in the army when I was 27. Um, so for me, I saw it as kind of coming from an area where people didn't really know what to do with their money. And a lot of people in the military don't have that like financial savvy. I really like went down this like mission of like trying to like educate as many veterans on po- as possible on their VA home loan benefit. And that just like snowballed into like a really sort of big thing. Um, yeah. So that's kind of my journey into mortgage lending and what, what led me that way. Um, I was not living the surf every morning lifestyle. I was more living like investment banker lifestyle. I had like, 
I would take two days off a year and that was Christmas and Super Bowl Sunday and that was it. So, so you were, th- this is amazing. I'm, I'm glad <clears throat> that, you know, we're getting to know each other on this cause you definitely have a, a unique story. Um, mm-hmm. let me do a couple of things here. I know it's kind of weird for the interview format for me to kind of explain stuff to maybe non-military or our listeners mm-hmm. out there, but, um, I, the, the way I'm going to title this episode will certainly discuss the fact that you're a veteran, but I think mm-hmm. non-veterans can learn a lot from this too. So I don't want to broadcast it just to them in service of that. Um, I'm going to again, speak to the listener here real quick, some stuff. Uh, oh, three is a captain in the army. Um, it's a commissioned officer. It's a leader. You know, I was enlisted. Um, we're the ones that usually have stripes. Uh, when Zach says Ranger tab, that is Ranger school. Most people have heard about it and the medical process for it. I've discussed on here that I was med boarded out of the air force. Um, one of the toughest things is imagine being a couple of days away from one of the biggest accomplishments in your life and being told, Oh, sorry, can't do it. That's essentially what ended up happening. Um, and to be a ranger, um, you have to have that sort of drive. And Zach definitely obviously has it. Unfortunately, it sounds like medically, though, the army said, nope, um, and, and took that opportunity away. Yeah, I, I had like a pretty bad injury for okay. four days before I was supposed to graduate. And then they didn't, you know, you can't miss more than 72 hours of graduation. There was a lot of deliberation. And yeah, I ended up not graduating. So, okay. And what I want to point out here, listeners, is what Zach is kind of, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit here, Zach, but um, this idea of him turning kind of a a harder time in his life into something beneficial, right? We already discussed that he was originally planning on doing 30 years in the military. Instead, when he got out, not only did he dive into a very heady business world of real estate investment or almost investment banking, like you said, but he's paying it forward by trying to help other veterans. I think listeners, it's probably clear to you right now, as it is to me as a ex admissions director, why Zach was an easy yes to booth. So Zach, we know why you got in. Um, you're displaying leadership, you're living leadership, which regardless of a comms undergrad, the fact that you have such good leadership experience, um, is really a tribute to, to why you, or it really, obviates why you got into a top tier business school. Um, so very, very happy for you, man. Um, again, just wanted to kind of level set for civilians out there. Um, what's going on. So, um, all right, next. Well, do you have an idea of where you want to go next? What, what was your journey after that? Yeah. So like I said, I, I really, I was, yeah. I mean, I don't know how you could describe how like the, the state I was in, with work. But for me, it was very like heavily focused on like, like I literally like, it was like, to me, it was like my job to like save people financially in the future. Like it, I was like working with some sort of passion that I didn't even really know existed. Um, but it was really cool for me to see, you know, I, I, I did a lot of stuff. I did like a lot of like credit, how to improve your credit classes. Cause unfortunately like a lot of people in the military have like really bad credit. Like I did like everything you could do to improve someone's finances. Like that's like what I really did. And then like, oh, like I did loans too. But by doing like all these like good educational activities came like really good business. Um, So my second year, I was like the number four VA lender by volume in the country. Um, That was also the 2020. So like if you think about that, like everybody else who's been doing mortgages for like 20 years, 
Like they have 20 years of refinances that they can do in 2020 that I didn't have. So like, I think to be able to like dominate a market that quickly, I was just like, and the thing about being a mortgage lender, it's kind of like your leasing business. Like you're in charge of your sales, your marketing, you have to get someone through a loan, you have to follow up with them. But like, I couldn't take like, in three and a half years, I did $275 million of revenue personally. I can't like sell that to someone. Right. Um, so I was like, um, and then like insert my girlfriend, she, we, we kind of met when I was doing that. And I, I kind of got a little bit bored because, um, I don't know, it, it wasn't like challenging. Like I, I found the work fulfilling for what I was doing with my clients, but it wasn't challenging. Um, and my girlfriend was kind of like, you know, I'd bought a third property at this time. It was like this beautiful estate on like the top of this ridge in Oahu. And my girlfriend was like, you need to like stop doing this and you need to go like start a company because if you can do this, this quickly, she was like, there's no reason that you can't build like an amazing company. Um, so like really like credit to her to like getting me like re-engaged into like education. Um, and then, you know, it kind of like made sense to me too, right? Like if you can go like, you know, be a big fish in a big pond, like, overnight, like, I think you need to switch ponds, you know, like maybe a bigger nice. pond. Right. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of my thought process there. Um, and then, yeah, so it took me like a year and a half after that. Cause I was doing about 75% of like my company's like volume. So if I would have just quit, like they would have had to fire people would have been a mess sure. for like the, a year and a half after getting that like number four in the country. Um, I kind of like trained people to like take over my business and that really stunk. Cause like, I like, again, they're not paying me for this like awesome car that they're getting or awesome like, right. business that they're getting. Right. Um, but again, like I couldn't exit like that. Like if I had a startup, I could have, I could have sold it, you know? Um, so that just like furthered that. So it took a year and a half, kind of trained those guys up, handed off my business. Also like impeccable timing with the market. I didn't want to go through like the interest rate rise and stuff like that. Um, so yeah. And then I kind of, um, sold all my properties in Hawaii and I started a venture fund, um, with some folks out in Hawaii, it's primarily my money and we invest in, uh, veteran owned and operated like startups. We usually do like mostly early stage as late as a series A, I did one series A. So amazing. Um, so going to the first thing I want to ask here is, um, you're already talking like an MBA how did you get this knowledge prior to the MBA, especially having a comms undergrad with the, the venture stuff for you're talking about series a, um, IB, um, you know, exit strategies, stuff like that, that a lot of people go to business school to learn. And I'm just curious. I mean, you're autodidactic. You're obviously self-taught I would imagine. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I look, so like, honestly, I, I like got into this, like religiously listening to how I built this like podcast. Um, when it came to the venture stuff, I, I have a weird approach to things and it's a very like non booth answer, I would say, but I really like to come at things like how I would come at it. Like naturally, like, you know, when I, when I, again, I, I talked about like my girlfriend being like a huge influence as to like why I'm here. Like she was like begging me. She was like, read this venture book, read this venture book, read this, read that. And I'm like, no, I'm not like reading anything. Like I'm going to go like my investment thesis is like, I want like older founders. I want 
people with families because they have something on the line other than like just like some kids that think something's cool. Um, and I want people that like, yeah, like kind of have something to lose. Like that was primarily my thesis. And then like sort of my market, I, I kind of just fell into it. My ranger buddy in ranger school was starting or he has this company called the ugly company. And I did their series a, and he connected me with like, um, other people in that industry. And I just started like networking in that industry. And obviously when you have like, I didn't really have to go out and seek too much deal flow. Like I think in like from like 2022 to now, like if you have checks to write, like people are going to come to you. Um, so that's kind of like how that happened as far as like exits and stuff like that. And talking about that stuff, I don't, I don't know. I think I just maybe picked it up from how I built this. I couldn't really tell you. No, this is wonderful. Uh, for us non-business people out there, what's a series A? A series A is just like, it's like, Hey, like, so a series A to me, I don't know. It's so it's funny. You talk to different people that give you different answers, or at least this is what I've found. Right. Cause one of my companies I invested in, they're doing like, Oh, we're doing our first full round. I'm like, Oh, a series A. And like, well, we're not talking, we're not calling it that. I'm like, okay. To me again, non book, zero research answer. A series A is like, Hey, we're, we're like, we're past the proof of concept phase. We have revenue and we're using this money to like expand product sales. I mean, if you ask a professor at Booth, I'm sure they would give you a different answer. Maybe that's the right answer. Uh, yeah, but to me, it's like, you know, we have a business, a viable business that's generating revenue and we are using this money to now expand our operations. Um, okay. Or in the case, the Series A that I participated in, he used it 100% for, you know, property, plant and equipment. And yeah, and that's all it was. Like he bought land and he put he put a factory on that land. So that was like the purpose of his Series A. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so one of our internets is cutting out a bit. The cool thing about how this application works is it's recording your audio locally. So when okay. I upload this, it won't, but I still might have to ask you to repeat yourself a couple of times just cause I didn't actually yeah. hear it yet, but yeah, that's um, fine. I, I think we're good though. Um, what I wanted to ask next, uh, let me think I just went off track there. Um, one of the main questions that I got a lot working in admissions was mm -hmm. essentially how much more money can I make after an MBA? And I know you said you're not um, shy about talking about money. If you're talking 1% on 275, we're talking at least 2.7 million. Um, that's per year. Uh, and we, while we don't need to go into that, you know, you figure that the average boothie is looking at total comp wise, maybe about 250,000 or so a year immediately after, um, after graduating with an MBA. What it sounds like for you is that that's a whole order of magnitude less than what you make or what you were making. So can you talk money and why the MBA is still a good investment for you? I, I like, I mean, I think the reason why I will talk about money is because to me it's not important. Also when people like hear this, like, oh, that's what people with money say, right? But my whole like, I think, purpose in life is based around impact, like positive, moral, good impact. Um, I think people can do it, like good impact, but like go, go wrong down the road, but like it's doing good things in a good way. And like, if you focus on doing good things in a good way, like the money will be a byproduct of that. Does that make sense? So it's like when people are like, Oh, I'm going to get an MBA to like make more money. I'm just like, to me, and I'm not trying to sound like some like, you know, older like guru or anything, but to me, I'm like, okay, like 
you're going to go down that road. And I really hope at some point that you realize that like, if you, if you're doing something to make money, like you will not make as much money as you could make. If you rather, rather, if you focused on like doing a good thing in a good way that benefits other people in again, in a way that you can monetize that, right? Like as long as you can marry those two things without getting too focused on the money side of things. um, Yeah. I don't, I, I don't, think that's like i mean i respect people if that's their answer i do understand that's important to people i just i think you're like missing the boat and that's something that i kind of like learned from like my marketing approach and mortgage lending is like i didn't market mortgages i marketed like financial education um so i think for me like the importance of getting an mba is kind of like twofold right i think a it's going to make me like a much better founder and i know that like when i go out and i raise money for my future company like I want those investors to know that I did everything that I could to make sure that their money is safe with me. So that's, that's kind of the first, the second is just like personal growth. Um, I think that I've done a lot of things. Like I, I also had like a couple of companies while I was mortgage lending. Um, and yeah, I just, I definitely didn't do things the right, the right way, like accounting, expensing, stuff like that. And I just feel like, Hey, if I am going to build like a, you know, it might sound funny, but like if I'm going to build like a fortune 100 company, like how could I not have like a foundation in business? So that's, that's Zach, like this, why an MBA. This is phenomenal. Um, I, the reason I was looking away in the camera there, I'm taking notes cause you're mentioning such good stuff. Um, one, I, I, I got to tell you probably one of the coolest things from working where I did in a top tier admission school was being constantly impressed by the people that I met coming in and I don't mean to embarrass you here, but you're rekindling that spirit. The, the level of talent and good people that top tier business schools pulls in is just inspirational to me. Um, I have a, uh, I have a master's in writing actually, uh, totally, totally useless, but, um, do good things in a good way. That is phenomenal. Um, I'm pretty sure we have the title for this podcast. Um, nice. what a, what a great sentiment. Um, yeah, I have so many things here. I, I love that sentiment. Um, before I forget it, a little bit of a non sequitur here. What is the podcast you mentioned earlier? That was one of the questions I had. Oh, it's it's how I built this. It's how an NPR. I built this. Yeah, it's like, I don't know. To me, it's like that. I, I just didn't like, again, like I didn't know, like, I don't I I just had like no exposure to a lot of things like growing up. Um, and that really like showed me I'm like, because I've like, I had my first business when I was 16. I built like custom fiberglass duck hunting boats. Um, so I've always been like a sky is the limit person or like go and do your own thing. But like listening to that podcast and just hearing like over and I mean, I've listened to, I think I've listened to the whole thing and just like reinforcing like this is how these different people like did these things. I was like, okay, like I can, I can do this. Like I can do 275 million in revenue. And when I'm tired or bored or whatever, I can sell it rather than lease it from a bank, like lease that business from a bank, you know? Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's dive into that a little bit. So, um, fiber, fiberglass duck hunting boats, you said, mm-hmm. okay. Um, if you don't mind, can you tell me in as much detail as you want? Um, when you say no exposure to anything growing up, I think I resonate with that, but I just, you know, always want to level set. Um, tell me more about that. Yeah. I mean, like if you were to like go look up 
Woodbine, New Jersey, and like the education statistics or like, you know, anything about that area, I think that would give you like a pretty good idea. Um, you know, growing up, we were certainly like, I would say middle class, but like most of my friends and their family, there's just no industry where, where I lived, like literally no industry. So, you know, my dad was a state trooper. Um, he had gone to college on a basketball scholarship and my mom had never gone to college. Um, and everybody like, you know, like in that area, it's like, Hey, like, are you a good person? And like, are you sort of a state trooper? Do you work in like tourism maybe? Or like, I don't know. One of my friend's mom was like travel agent. Like it's just like very random what people do. And it's just not a conversation of like, climbing like the American like wealth structure, you know? So like things down to like, like when I remember like from second through fourth grade, my teachers were on strike. Like we had class in like a gym with like 90 students crammed into a gym. People were like, Oh, you hold your pencil funny. I'm like, yeah, like I had to like teach my, you know, like, you know, so it's like, I mean, they now granted, like I definitely like, I got to go to like a private all boys, like Catholic high school, which was like an hour away from my house, which like, you know, one other kid from my hometown had like the privilege to go there. Um, So that was really amazing. But that was like a full family effort. Like my grandparents chipped in, like, you know, my parents chipped in stuff like that. But that to me, like, you know, that was like the first time, like, Hey, like you need to go to college. You know what I'm saying? Like before that, there was no, like, that's just not what people do or did, you know? people are builders or, you know, yeah. Yeah. And which is totally, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, that's totally. Yeah. Totally different than the, uh, my, my wife and I are looking at the Northeast (laughs) with, um, if we end up going to Amazon, uh, my sister works and lives in DC and that climbing the social ladder is such a huge thing out there and not in your part of New Jersey, um, is certainly interesting, but that, that definitely clarifies what you mean. Um, yeah. And then if I, if I if just really quickly, I, I just want to like contrast that because when I met my girlfriend, um, she was born in India, her parents moved here and like, she was in like math, like camps, like after school. And like, there was no question, like she was going to like an Ivy league and like the prep, like what she knows about college admissions. And it's like, she, she's crazy. Like she, like, I just like was never exposed to anything. and she, she didn't come from that, but like her parents did the research to do that. Um, again, like my parents definitely like set me up for success, but they're also sort of like a product of like, if you don't know, you don't know. And where do you get that information? You know? So it's like very, when, when I look at, when we have conversations, it's like completely different as far as like preparation for the world like that we got, you know? And that, that's very real working in admissions. We're actually trained on the demographics of what you just discussed. And, um, a, a real metric out there is, uh, you know, the average GMAT score, the old GMAT, I guess, is a 730 for these top schools. The average GMAT score, if you live in India, is 750. That's average. The yeah. only 780s I saw were from Indian um, applicants because uh, yeah. it, is, it is just a different exposure level. And I think that's a great call out as the contrast to um, more blue collar state trooper Um you know, focused on being a good person and not to say that that's mutually exclusive with prepping for, you know, 
an MD, JD, DO, as they do over in India. But there is there is a difference. And I think what's giving me hope, and I hope giving our listeners hope about this, is that, you know, well, I mean, you said it. I think your guiding light of being a good person by paying it forward has set you up for success, not some unbelievable silver spoon background where you were born, bred, and raised to be an MBA candidate. Right. Um, when I, I want to share uh, something I've used as a quote of mine for a long time. When I was uh, um, I was in the Air Force enlisted, and they have uh, red ropes. It's student leaders, essentially like a drill team rope or something. And they asked me uh, what my mission was if it wasn't the Air Force's mission. What was my own personal mission? And I said I wanted to see my life's work reflected in the success of others. And you're one of the first people I've met who I think – Maybe not worded in that way, but you 100% embody that idea that all of your personal success, it sounds like, comes from your guiding light being do good things in a good way. Yeah. Phenomenal. I'm, you're inspiring me. This is great. Um, a couple of notes here. Are you familiar with Professor Epley? I'm not. Okay. Um, I will <clears throat> introduce you to him personally. Um, phenomenal. He does designing a good life at Booth. Oh, nice. Um, ethics. Basically, his book um, is called Mindwise. Super, super good. Mindwise is about a lot of stuff, but one of the more beneficial and um, contemporary issues it tackles right now is essentially how we um, ascribe biases to people or biases to people. Um, probably universally the most well-liked professor at Chicago Booth, um, Grubhub's founder, when he left Grubhub to go create, um, it's called like Fix It. It's a company that hires, trains, and employs blue-collar workers, but gives mm -hmm. them insurance from day one, so on and so forth. It's not a gig economy. The founder of Grubhub created this Fix It company partly in because of what he learned in Professor Epley's class, which is the sentiment you're already well aware of and living, which is doing good things in a good way. He didn't like the CEO of um, Grubhub didn't like that he created a gig economy. So he yeah. wanted to create an economy that actually could support people in a good way. So he, uh, he came and spoke in Epley's class. So we definitely need to get you introduced to Epley and get you into his class. He is, he's phenomenal. Um, nice. Yeah. I'd appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. Um, absolutely. Um, I think so. I grew up uh, super, super poor. And in an earlier podcast, I had talked about the idea that um, I think I even said it. I was like, you know, when people tell me that they don't care about money, exactly the sentiment you kind of quashed. I was like, that's easy to say when you make X amount of dollars. Right now, right. the realistic sentiment that I give, though, that you certainly haven't haven't trumped on is that money is not nothing. Right. Right. Um, thousand percent. Yeah. Can you talk to that where I have um, what you said earlier was doing something to make money doesn't necessarily maximize income. Right. So can you tell me more about while money isn't everything, how have you seemingly from my perspective here seamlessly married a very high income, high earning potential job with still being a very ethical person and paying it forward? Do you see those two as tied together or just kind of? Go yeah, from there. I, I think like in real estate specifically, um, I'll try to like not talk in colloquialisms, but everybody's sort of like 
chasing the carrot, right? So that means everybody's chasing sort of the money, right? Like it's like, hey, if I close this many deals this month, like I'm going to make this. So I think people go around it like very directly. Um, like, hey, you know, they might have good data, like market data on like what the housing market in that area does, stuff like that. Um, and that's kind of like where they live, right? Um, for me, I think I saw like my own real estate purchases because I, I, you know, I don't know how at 23, like if I was like, I need to buy a house in Hawaii, but I did like, I don't, I don't know what inspired how I found that, how I figured out the VA loan at that age. But I was like, I was like the only like platoon leader, like Oh one in my battalion that like bought a house in Hawaii and like, I sold it in 2022. I bought it in 2014 and it doubled, you know? I mean, I didn't know in 2014 it was going to double, but I'd looked at like what the market in Hawaii did. Um, and so many people in the military like struggle with finances. So I think like rather than focus on like closing transactions, again, like I just focused on financial literacy, which is you can connect the dots, but you have to go an extra step. So I think just like going that extra step and like trying to figure out like a strategy that helps your clients or your customer. I mean, you could be doing skincare, you could be doing like, like any industry, right? Like if you're selling something that is going to benefit your consumer. So like what, like, okay. Like if you're getting better skin, that's fine. Like if, if you talk about skincare, I'm sure. just trying to think it's like, that's just yeah. the first thing that pops in my head, right? Like you sell something like, Hey, it's going to make you look great. Well, it's like, to me, I would look at it as like, okay, like, well, if you look great, like what percentage or like how likely are you to get like an increase, like, like a raise or a promotion or do well in interviews, stuff like that. So I think people like get very focused on this is what our product does, not like this is how our product improves your entire life, right? So I am like very confident if I were to start a skincare brand, like, my, I would go with like, Hey, you're going to do better in, in life because you, I don't know, your skin looks better and therefore like you you're will have confidence. Like, I don't know if you can, I don't know if you can make that. Connect. I had great data on like home ownership and like what that does for your finances. Like I, that data is like very re readily available, but like, I think that selling a product is much more than selling the product. It's improving the life of the person you're selling it to. So I think if you, you know, if you have to like connect, if there's no way to connect that dot, like maybe move to a different industry. Like that would be like, like I, I, like I have to be able to connect those dots. Like does my product improve your whole life or, or the financial part of your life, which then can, you know, going back to talking about that, right. Like when you have money, you can afford, you know, better groceries. You can, a better gym membership, like, right. Like there are things that, you know, I, I know I say I don't care about it, but to your point, right. Like it is important to do to like, I'm, I buy really nice groceries. Like I have a nice gym right. membership, like that stuff makes, I would hope makes me live longer, better quality of life, stuff like that. But yeah, anyway, like, I think like if you can't connect the dots on your product and how it improves someone's overall life or an aspect of their life, not just your skin looks better. I think that that is like, you need to think about how you're marketing your product. <clears throat> Brilliant. Awesome. Um, I was going to go on a monologue here, but I really want to 
limit my amount of talking because you're giving such good stuff. So I'm just going to ask a question. Could you sell anything? Could you sell used cars? You personally? Um, I don't think I would. I think I could. I don't think I would. And why like, wouldn't you? I like, again, there's like the ethical sort of like dynamic there. And I'm not saying like used cars, like, yeah, like whatever, like if that's what it is. But for me, I think there needs to be some sort of like big, pic- bigger picture again for the person's life. So that, that would be like an area where I would like to focus on, um, for whatever it is that I do. Like, I don't think I'm really like, I don't look at myself as like a salesperson. Like I would go to these like big, like mortgage lending conferences and people would be like running up and like, Oh my God, like, how are you so good at sales and all this stuff? And I'm like, I'm like not a salesperson. Like I really look at myself as like an educator first and like doing the education side of home ownership in the mortgage lending example, like the byproduct of that was increased sales. Like I'm not set. Like I, I hate like doing like, dinners with people and like, you know, like a lot and like, that's huge in the mortgage industry. Like, it's like, Oh, like you take realtors out to really nice dinners or like, you know, and I did some of that stuff too, cause you kind of have to, but that certainly never like scrap. That's not like what I like to do, you know? So I think I could sell anything. I, I wouldn't. Right. Um, and I certainly wouldn't like, you wouldn't see me working at like a tobacco industry or like, you know, something that like is proven that like is right. not like good for you, you know, like that. I, I don't think I could do that. Like if it's detrimental to someone's health, someone's health, no, but yeah, you know, this is, this is perfect. That's um, exactly what I was hoping for. I was a, I was a personal training manager as a fitness manager at 24 hour fitness back in the day. And one of the toughest things I had to get my personal trainers to buy into was to believe in what they were selling because of the price that you're, we were asking, which was back in, this was like, Oh, two Oh three. Um, you know, we were, we were asking a dollar a minute or so. I'm sure the price has gone up since then, but you know, if you can't genuinely create a, a sense of pride or care about what you do and what you're selling, and if it means something, you know, um, yeah, you're not going to be able to sell, but that's interesting. Cause yeah, you, you come across as someone who, yeah, you might be able to just cause you know, kind of like that, that military mentality that some of us have where, you know, yeah, we can do most things just from sheer stubbornness, but do we want to No. anyway, that, that that's great. Um, you come across as extremely authentic, which is a word I keep using in the podcast about authenticity. Um, and I want to get to if that came through in your essays, but that's jumping a pretty huge um, portion of this. So let's get back to successful company. Girlfriend starts putting and and thank your girlfriend on behalf of the entire world that she sends you back to MBA school because um, you'll do big things, bigger things. Um, so you're running a company. MBA comes up again. Where, where did you start? Um, was it test prep? Was it looking at schools? How did, how did the MBA process start again? Yeah. So there's things I did that I liked and there's things I did that I didn't like. Um, the things I did like, if it's okay, I'll give them a shout out. Um, things I didn't like, I won't give them a shout out just cause sure. I don't, I, you know, um, so the kind of where I, I started in two places, I was like, I know my MBA is going to be, you know, paid for kind of courtesy of uncle Sam. 
So I went and I spent, spent money on consultants. Um, we'll get to that after we'll, we'll, we'll go, but that was one thing I went to. And then I Can really, you say that again? really, you actually, you actually cut out there for me. I'm so sorry. Oh yeah. So, so two, my two starting points, really three was again, we, we touched on it, but like getting my business handed over <laughs> was really important to me to make sure my company was in like a good position for success. And then, um, I, w- I hired consultants. Um, and then I also took target test prep for my GMAT prep. Um, I, yeah, I forget the program I did in like 2018. It was just like, I needed like the basic, I need to build on the basics of the GMAT to get the score that I knew that I could get. The problem with the course that I took before is they were like, Hey, there's like some baseline knowledge here that I did not have. Um, target test prep for me was like huge because I mean, it, it, I don't know how I, I could not tell you how many hours I spent doing that course. It took me like a long time. Like, I think it took me like six months of like, that was my, you know, I was doing it six hours a day on the weekdays and two to four on the weekends, you know? I mean, and like, I had the luxury, like I was doing my venture fund and like, I don't know, like. I don't know what other people's experiences are, but like that is not very time intensive. Um, like I, I didn't find it time intensive. Everything I was doing was early stage. I didn't do have to do like a ton of due diligence. My due diligence was more on the founders than the product. And like, I, yeah, I won't even talk about that stuff, but, um, yeah. So target test prep was huge. It, it builds on like the basics of everything. And it really like, I, I need to, I need to like, I don't need to know how to take the test. I need to understand the material to do well in the test. Like I'm not nice. like a gamey person. And right. I think that target test prep really set me up for that. Um, the consulting on the other hand, I paid a lot of money for the consulting. Um, I don't have any ill will towards like the consultant that was like assigned to me, or I guess I kind of like picked or was like kind of like guided to pick that person. Um, I applied round two because that's when my GMAT score came in to Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, uh, MIT Sloan, London Business School is my safety school and Columbia. And I got denied from every single one, except I got waitlisted at Columbia. Okay. Um, and I was like pretty, I felt that I had like a strong candidacy and I was like pretty confused. Um, so that was like, I mean, I had really prepared for getting my MBA at that point for like a year and a half. Like, you know, so I was like really taken aback. I thought I'd done some really awesome things. I know I'm like a person of character and I was just kind of like, what like that is so weird you know and i kind of chalked it up to like hey like after the army i kind of was like outside of like i don't want to say the matrix but i will i was kind of like outside the matrix for us and like do people not know like what what was on my like i was just very confused um and then i was like i i kind of started talking to other consultants because i was like i didn't get the results and i knew i wanted to do some round three apps because like again i'm 33 like i need to go to i need to like it's I don't want to be graduate. Like I'm already going to graduate. I'm 35. That would have pushed it to 36. Like that's <laughs> like, you know, I, I, that's not, I don't feel that old, but it is a number that people index off of. And like, it's certainly, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, 
So I, I started talking to the booth. Like I always like networked with the vet clubs. Um, and like the previous vet clubs are like, Hey, do you want us to help with your resume or any of this? I'm like, no, I hire consultants. Like you guys like focus on like some people who maybe don't have the resources to hire consultants. Like I don't want to be a burden. Um, with booth, I was kind of like, I applied to booth in Yale in round three. And then with booth, like the vet with the vet club at booth did to my resume versus my consultant. I was just like, okay, like that was a huge waste of money. Like the, the resume that I submitted to booth was like night and day to the resume that I'd submitted round two. And like, I didn't use my, like my consultant still like, I think he like felt bad. So he still like helped me like with my S like strictly editing, not content, like edit my essays a little bit, but I really was like, Hey, I'm going to like try and do this. You know, there was a little bit of help. Certainly it's not as much help with the other applications. Um, and then, yeah, I got accepted to booth round three. And with that resume that I submitted to Yale, I got waitlisted at Yale in round three. So it's like, okay, like I did two schools in round three with a resume that the vet club helped me with and with kind of essays that were, I don't know, I would say a little more raw than my other essays. And like, I got results off that. So I think the consulting thing, you know, I don't know. I probably would do it again. I probably would have used a different person. So I think I, I just, it is nice having that support, especially when you don't come from like a background and like applying to schools or like this, the scrutiny that you put into applications. I think it's nice to have a second set of eyes, um, professionalize. I, I, I do think that's good. I just think that I just was like the first person I talked to. I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know? So I think like if you are going to hire consultants, I would really do a lot of diligence on who they are and what they're actually doing for what they're getting paid. Absolutely. Um, how much did you pay for the consultancy overall? 20 grand. And they're like, they're like, Oh, did you hear me? I did not. Oh, it was, it was 20 grand, 20,000. Okay. And they're like, on all the things or like one of the, you know, I talked to a different consultant after I'd gotten, and that consultant told me not to apply round three. And I was like, I'm, you know, I'm, I just got to do it. I got to do, it. I'm doing it, which I'm very happy. I did. I, um, you don't want to say who they are. I have a feeling it's a woman's name. It's not. Oh, it's not that one. Okay, good. Yep. They're, they're pretty, I, I, I would prefer not to. Yeah, um, I just no don't want to like, you know, I have a good, like my consultant, there's no bad blood. I'm not saying he wasn't attentive. I just, you know, it could have just been in no way. Am I like, I'm not saying it's like his fault or anybody's fault or anything like that. I just think that the, what, like, again, what the vet, what the vet club at booth did to my resume was a way better product than what my consultants did. And that was free. Um, so, so I think that's just something to think about. So that's huge. Uh, part of what I talk about in this podcast is not paying consultants because while your view is certainly your view to me, I think about $20,000 nice guy or not, it did not get me the results I want. That's not worth $20,000 in my opinion. I also think that that sort of service is or that sort of price is absurd to charge yeah. for school. Right. Yeah. When, we have people like me at Booth, like my wife is one of the head resume reviewers for Booth. Like this knowledge is free out there. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and um, we have a we have an episode on resume review. Uh, 
and yeah, I would, I would encourage all the listeners out there to really pay attention because the booth way to do resumes works, um, extremely yeah. well. Um, yeah, definitely. And, I mean, yeah, like I said, the, the resume that they, that the vet club like helped me put together was te- like, so I much better. like, look, I'm like, why did we even submit the resume we submitted round two? Like it was that much better. It was night and day better. So yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. But, so you got to yeah. be careful with the consultants. Cause I mean, that's to me, a resume is, you know, and again, I'm a person that has read hundreds and hundreds of applicants to a top tier school and most resumes, especially the tailored ones from consultancies are terrible. They just are. Um, yeah. Another big one I want to ask about, cause this is the area that I offer, um, basically consultancy in for, um, literally a, a fraction of that cost, a couple zeros less, um, is the essay prep is the only thing that I would consider myself an expert on. Um, one that yeah. I have a master's in writing and am an essayist, but I also, you know, read and denied and admitted hundreds of students based off of their essays. I think you said something incredibly powerful there that echoes a sentiment I've been trying to get across, which is the resumes you submitted were more raw is more probably authentic, maybe more. Tell, tell me about that. Tell me about the, the redone resumes or the, the essays. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I told him when we started working together, I said, I'm not going to budge on like authenticity and I'm not going to lie about anything. I, I mean, obviously, like, I think that sounds like obvious, but I felt like going into this, that was something like he needed to know. And I was like, and I <laughs> am going to like write them. Um, you know, I, I took a bigger risk on my booth essay, like, and I forget what the prompts were, but one of them, I just like talked about surfing cause that's yep. what I love to do. Whereas my other essays to the other schools were very much like this, like marrying of like what I want to do and what I have done and why and how I can marry them versus like my essay, my one essay to booth, it was about you know, a really gnarly surf accident that I had and like what like gave me the courage to paddle back out 30 minutes later, you know, um, which is like not, I don't know. I mean, to me, I was like, I, I, I was very conflicted in writing it. Cause I'm like, man, I have all this awesome stuff that I want to talk about, but like, Hey, I'm going to talk about surfing the North shore of Oahu in the wintertime, which is like not something many people can do, you know? Um, and obviously something resonated with someone, you know, whereas like my other essays were much like more like, like professional and businessy and I can do all these awesome things. And this is why I can do them because of this awesome past. So I want to pull back the curtain a little bit. Um, maybe you already know this, um, but maybe more so for our listeners. Uh, I've said this in other episodes. No one, us admissions people, we really don't care that you, the royal you, are good at business. That makes you average at a top school. It doesn't matter. That's why the, you know, while I think using ChatGPT to help edit essays is fine, it churns out generic stuff. Most consultancies churn out generic stuff. Generic doesn't cut it at top tier schools oh, you're great at business and you facilitated this and earned X amount of money. No one cares. That makes you average, right? If you've done all this stuff, your resume speaks for itself like Zach's did. And then you tell me a cool story about surfing and stick and maybe some resiliency. 
that's going to stand out. So I tell my graduate writing students that they need to write with teeth. They need to leave a mark, right? Like I already remember it was surfing in Oahu, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why do I remember the location? Everything we've talked about, I still remember it because it's completely unique to this whole business conversation. So what I've told the, the listener out there on podcasts is that I want them to leave a mark so that when that director goes home that day, they're still thinking about that <coughs> resume or sorry, that essay. I keep saying resume, um, that essay. And that sounds like what you did. Authenticity is key. The super generic marrying. Here's how I'm a good business owner and business leader, blah, 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 blah. Again, that doesn't make you special. And especially booths prompt that you're asking about is, um, you've told us a lot about you professionally. Now tell us something that your resume and your essays or that your application doesn't tell us. It says, tell us something personal. And the fact that you actually did something personal and just took a leap of faith is just excellent. And I can tell you too, you were read by at least four people and at least three of those four people had to have been like, oh yeah. So that essay that you did, stood out to at least three people, not just someone, but multiple people were impressed with that. Um, cause just, you know, applications are never read by just one person. Um, so well done. Um, I want to be clear here that unless you have some background knowledge, um, you're assuming, it sounds like you're assuming that the resume did more good for you, the change in the resume than the essay did. Yeah. I mean, I can send like, I'll, I can send you an email, my, round two resume and the resume I submitted to booth. And it's like, it is not even like, it's not even funny how much better, like the booth vet club helped me with my resume first. Like the, the one that I submitted, like after I saw that one, I was like the one that I submitted previously was like, it was, I would go so far as to say it was trash. Like it was bad. How long was your resume for booth? Well, it was one page, so I had to cram Thank everything you. into one Thank page. Thank you. Listeners, okay, I need to go back on what I've said earlier, listeners. I've kind of said like maybe one and a half page. That's bullshit. Absolute bullshit. It must be one page. I cannot tell you how important that is. So Zach's probably going through resume review right now as a first quarter um, boothy, like uh, my wife Katie did. Um, and you must have a one page resume that is mandatory. I cannot tell you how important that is. And Zach, the sentiment I've tried to get across to my listeners is that if you're a 27 year old with three or four years of work experience, you're just not that interesting to have a three or four page resume. Yeah. I mean, I hate, I hated the one page because like, like you said, we're talking about 11 years of work experience, awesome things in the military, great things in mortgage Mm -hmm. lender, you know, one small business, one startup, on the board of like three charity organizations, like an LP at a fund, my own fund, like to get that to one page, like was like rough. So like kind of when I hear people like complaining about it and I don't mean like, I'm sure there's someone who's done like much more things, but I definitely have like hopped around a lot. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, nobody wants to, you know, no, massively important. Yeah. Pick, pick pick the most important stuff and throw away the rest, you know? I mean, my wife, you know, Naval Academy, she's already got a graduate degree under about four patents with Boeing, you know, 30 some odd years old when she applied and same thing must be one page. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad you touched on that. Um, I, I'd love to see the before and after as well. That'd be great. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. Okay. Wonderful. Um, yeah, that, that's great. I, I like to that 
we're focusing on the resume and the um, essays a lot more as the differentiator. But let's go back. What did you get on the GMAT? If you don't mind me asking. 740. 740. Awesome. Yep. Um, So that was a 500 something to 740. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm on it like, I think it was like a 540 to a 740 is like the progression. Every person I've interviewed, and I still talk, um, listeners, so you know too, I still talk to tons of people, right? My wife is very well connected (laughs) to Booth, and I have tons of people that know I worked in admissions, so they ask me questions all the time. And even outside of the three interviews I've done on this podcast now, I haven't heard anything bad about target test prep. Additionally, yeah. It's like, I, yeah. So I like networked with a guy at the Stanford vet club and he was like, do target test prep. And I just like listened. And then if anybody were to ever ask me like to just do target test prep and like set aside a lot, like if you need, if you need a foundational understanding of the GMAT and the material on it, like I didn't, the one I, the course I took was like how to almost like how to game the test. This was like how to understand each question and answer it properly. And like, that's what you'll get. It's going to be a lot more time, but like, nice. You like, I invested a ton of time, but it like ultimately it paid off. You know, no, that's perfect. And and you and the other two people I've interviewed for um, the NBA podcast have all three used and liked Target Test Prep. Yeah, it's like it's there's there's nothing else out there. Like in my opinion, like if it's the way to go for sure. Yeah. Unless if you're like if you can take a cold. Like my girlfriend took a cold and she got like a seven ten, but she's just like you know she's a software Jeez. engineer. She like you know, I don't know. She does Matt like she, and again, she's been like trained since she was like five for like the SAT and like stuff. So like, like her, like she wouldn't need to take it, you know, like, but like, yeah, if you're, if you're in the low sixes, high fives and you don't need to tune, like I was not in the tuning phase, right? definitely target test prep. No, that's awesome. Um, we can certainly discuss this offline more later. Uh, if you could, especially for my benefit, I'd love to see the before and after resume and before and after essays, if you have them. Yeah, um, I think I'm pretty sure I have everything saved. So Okay. I, I, I'd love to see that because, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I know kind of from the horse's mouth exactly what these schools are looking for, but, you know, things to continue reinforcing that would be would be beneficial. Um, so I, I, I'd love to see that. Um, let me see here. Uh you said do you have a hundred percent of the GI Bill? I do. Okay. Okay. Um, and then you're using yellow ribbon as well? Yes. Okay. I hope that stuff is squared away. I'm yeah. kind of like I'm waiting for VR and E to come through. So yeah. I haven't been that proactive because I'm just waiting for it to like like get a like I'm through everything. I'm just waiting for like the final approval. So I haven't been super proactive about the GI Bill because I think my VR and E is going to come through in like the next two weeks. So awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got denied for VR and E. They were like, no, you don't need another degree. I'm like, Oh, maybe yeah. I'm worried. I went about it an interesting route, which seems like it, it works we, for you. We, we can talk about that offline too. Yeah. Uh, possibly online. Actually, I want to do a quick transition here real quick. Um, so eventually, uh, hopefully before the end of November, I'm going to be launching a podcast called Pegasus. Like a, like a Pegasus, but a pig. Um, and it's basically uh, about, as I say, like doggy paddling in the deep end of academia. 
without all the jargon. So like the first theme that we're going to talk about is rebellion, which sounds cool, you know, quote, rage against the machine tool and all that type of stuff. But it actually has to do with Albert Camus um, myth of Sisyphus and idea of rebellion against the um, pointlessness of life, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, it's about self-discovery and becoming a good person. I would like you to come on that and interview again outside yeah. of the MBA um, to talk yeah, for sure. about yeah how, how you've become. It, it's very low key, um, you know, um, on the human level. Like one of my one of my issues when applying to a PhD in philosophy was just how much jargon and silliness is involved in academia. Um, and I think, you know, everything you're telling me, you're just an inspiring person. I'd love to have you on there. Um, but yeah, uh, let's, so I want you to circle back. I'd love to talk about the veteran stuff. Um, I'd love to have you on too, if we ever do get a big audience on, on my podcasts, um, to just give advice for, for our fellow veterans out there. Um, yeah. that being said, I know when I looked at your LinkedIn, you're very veteran focused, financial literacy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what, what's the future for you? Um, I know you're talking about entrepreneurship and everything, but what's the business future that you're at Booth for? Yeah. So, um, right now I am trying to recruit or not recruit to find the best technical co-founder I can, because I would like to start a company that sort of takes the real estate agent out of the real estate transaction which I think, um, you know, I've won the consumer at a national level in real estate through lending. Um, and there's just some things within the real estate industry that, uh, doesn't sit well with me, you know, um, there's kind of like two ways I could have gone about that. It's like, go be like an FBI agent or something and like, look into like things that agents do. Cause I would see like when you're a mortgage lender, you're like sure. the quarterback of the transaction, right? Like the whole, you, you see every thing that's going on. And, um, yeah, I mean like, you know, uh, I saw a lot of stuff that I didn't like or agree with. Um, in some cases, like, you know, I had to be sort of, I don't want to say, yeah, We'll just leave it at that. There's things in that industry sure. that are very broken. Um, we, we can extrapolate. Yeah. 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 That I would like to sort of fix. And I think that uh, with modern day technology, like a computer and like, again, like sort of an education platform is like where I'm, we'll be part of it, um, can can do this, a better job. So yeah. that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm looking to do. Absolutely. You will be a fun one to follow. We will definitely have you back on. I'd love, um, in addition to the Pegasus podcast, uh, to, to stay in contact and have you back on, uh, maybe after your summer internship, which it sounds like we'll probably be here in Chicago entrepreneuring for yourself. Um, yeah. and then, uh, you know, post post MBA as well. But let me ask a couple more, if you have a couple more minutes here. Um, yeah, we can, as long as you want to go, I'm good. Um, kind of some high level, they're, they're generic questions, but I think they can be beneficial. Um, you know, the typical, what was, what was the biggest mystery to you when applying to MBA school? What was like a blind spot? And if it's everything, that's okay. Every, every I mean, I, everything okay. like, I mean, like my, yeah, again, like my girlfriend has like, it seems like she was in like a 
Ivy boot camp since she was like five. And the knowledge gap there was just, you know, crazy. I mean, yeah, I, everything like I, Fair I enough. had no idea, you know, I didn't know. Yeah. What on the flip side, <laughs> what do you think if you had to pick one thing or maybe two helped you the most with this whole process? I will say again, target test prep. I don't know if that's awesome. what you're looking for, but no, like, that's fine. Like, I mean, you can't, you can't do it without a good, a good GMAT score. I mean, I'm sure you can, but like I need, I had a, not a stellar undergrad GPA, so I really needed a good yeah. GMAT score. Um, yeah, I, I would love to say I am so, I'm just really confused. Uh, like, to be honest, I'm very confused about the pro like how it, how everything shook out. Like, um, I, I was like very authentic in all of my essays. So I would say authenticity and I was very authentic in my, like, like that's something that I'm not willing to sacrifice, but like, I, I think take, I mean, we probably said it like taking a risk on an essay. Like, I mean, I, I saw my essays as a way to talk about the things that I couldn't talk about in my resume or expand on my resume. I would say when you look at the essays, maybe look at it more to like add another dynamic or like more depth of flavor rather than just expand on your resume because that's what worked at Booth. And that's kind of like, like I said, like around three, I didn't get into Yale, but like a round three wait list. Like that was better results than I got in round two, like just those two schools. And I definitely took bigger risks on those essays, which is, I mean, it's called a risk because it's hard to take. And I definitely am a risk taker, but I felt like on my essays, like, I just really like, I just really wanted to like tell people like how I got these numbers. Cause I was like, I don't think people understand what it means to do $275 million of loans. You know what I'm saying? Like in, in a short period of time like that, or like, you know, so I really was like focused on like, this was really hard and, and I went about it this way and I really wanted to like go through that process like through my essays and yeah, I was just, I was again, not in like a cocky way. I just thought like I was such a different, I felt like I was a different applicant. I think there's probably not very many mortgage lenders that like go to do this probably because they're happy, like making what they're making, um, or whatever the reason. Um, yeah. So I'd say, yeah, definitely TTP and then take, you know, take a risk on your essays. I, uh, I'm going to go on a bit of monologue here because I'll, I'll pull, pull back the curtain for you too and kind of tell you more about what's going on. Um, for, for what it's worth to you listeners out there too, I know um, all of the admissions directors at Chicago Booth through my wife. And I can tell you that if Booth is not on your list, it needs to be because um, the directors there are excellent. Um, but here's, uh, th- there's a bit of selection bias going on here because obviously I'm very into writing and essays, but I'll give you um, Zach and our listeners kind of, um, a behind the peak curtain on what I think happened. Um, so a 740 GMAT's cool, uh, but it's 10 points above the average. So it's not great. It just doesn't hurt. So essentially a 740, um, especially with a, uh, a U.S. male, um, is whatever. Um, it is not to diminish the accomplishment, but you know, now that we've gotten to know Zach for the past hour, of course, we're incre- I'm incredibly proud of you and amazed at your accomplishment. But if I were reading your application um, and it just had your name on there and said you have a 740, I'd be like, okay, whatever. Um, and it would that would be all the thought that I put into, and this is true for all the directors. 
Um, that'd be all the thought I put into your test score. What Zach is saving himself there is the negative, right? If you have a 500, it's going to be, oh my God, you know, this is going to skew our metrics so much. It's a hard pass or this has to be, you know, the second coming of Gandhi to get in to, for us to, to ignore this sort of score. So basically you set yourself up on an even playing field with the 740, maybe a little bit better, but an even playing field. Um, we go to the resume. The resume is good. Resume doesn't take a lot of time to read. Um, directors don't spend a ton of time on it. I'd say it's about 50, 50, but someone like me reading it would just by the fact that it's one page and well done would have stood out an incredible amount. Um, the issue though, in my opinion, again, I am extrapolating there's confirmation bias, but I am going to speak for most directors here. The issue though, is let's say you had something like $275 million of revenue, right? We see that all the time. It's not special. And that's what's weird about it is that so many, literally there, there's a, a Follies group, a, a stage play actor group at Booth that makes fun of those claims on resumes, right? Because everybody's done multiple, and they always say, you know, 270, 275M USD year over year, blah, 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 blah. Um, these huge numbers. And you you get kind of screen blindness at a time. And those numbers just aren't that impressive because it's it's a top tier school, right? Like the school I worked for, we had plenty of people with that kind of income or income. I'm saying that in air quotes, listeners, I know you can't hear it, um, but certainly good, right? I appreciate that the resume is written well. Um, then the directors would have moved on to the essays. And this is why I think the essays are what did it because all of a sudden this well-written resume is not BS, right? Plenty of people out there, um, I don't know when I was, when I was 19 and working at 24 hour fitness, um, our, our year to year income was, I think on training was like $16 million. I could say that I made $16 million that that was not me, right? That's the corporation. That's, I happened to be the manager, but I really had nothing to do with that. Right. That's what we're used to seeing on resumes. What Zach put on his resume was like $275 million of income. Oh, sure. Whatever we get to the essays. This is how I actually earned that money. Yes, that was me. Yes, I did this. That resume being well-written, right? And I'm literally, I'm seeing in my head right now how I read applications. I could pull them up side by side and be like, holy crap. Okay, very clear bullet point, made 275 million and the essay explains how. This is not a fake number. This is not an inflated number, right? So the the intratextuality, to use a really fancy word, the self-referencing and the unity of your application was extremely strong in that you had a good, easy to reference resume, but your essay actually proved that it wasn't just those fluff numbers, if you will, right? And then you personalized it. You took a risk that paid off and you tell me a cool story about a Wahoo. So I get kind of epistemologically, if we want to use another big word, knowledge wise, we can't really separate any of the parts of your resume, sorry, of your application. But I think what you did with your essays, if I had to guess, is truly what pushed you through just because even a well-written resume usually doesn't stand out that much because, you know, 
I, I met multiple, multiple self-made millionaires just walking into the admissions office where I worked. It's far more common than you think. What's uncommon is having a good resume, a good essay that explains how you became a self-made millionaire. And then you actually listen to the prompt and take a risk and tell us something cool. Like yeah. I honestly, Zach, I wouldn't put it past you uh, for the director to be like, you were the hundredth person that they've read. It's round three. They've just read over the past three months. They've read thousands of applications and they're just dying. Right. And you tell them a cool story about getting injured and getting back out there. You're, you're making yourself an easy yes. Right and authenticity. So that's the law monologue. Um, very well done. Uh, I, I certainly, I think it's certainly a combination of all of it, right? You made yourself an easy yes, but I would imagine that the uh, essays had a massive, massive role to play. So very, very well done. Um, yeah, I think um, I have about a million other questions, but I really think that they'll do best on like the Pegasus podcast because they're getting away from the uh, the NBA. Um, but thank you so much for coming on here. Do you have any other questions or ending comments? No, thank you a lot for having me on. I enjoyed it. Um, you know, I know it's probably long for the listeners, but, you know, if you're deciding on getting an MBA or how to go about applying, I think that we definitely covered the meat and potatoes. So... Absolutely. Um, and, and, and more so, I mean, you, you inspired me. I wish I was going back to an MBA school. So, um, Zach, thank you so much. I'd love to have you back on, uh, maybe in another year or so and see how your MBA process is going. Okay. Yeah. Anytime. All right, my friend, we will talk soon. Thank you. Thank you.